both our tremendous strengths and our greatest weakness, the abstract thinking capability. I'm going to remember it. I'm going to dip into my hippocampal memory over and over and over and remember this thing that happened. The Breaking Bias Podcast, formerly Diversity on Fire, the show where we explore the stories and experiences from people of all walks of life. We're on a mission to inspire new thoughts and dialogue in an effort to challenge bias and cultivate connection. I am your host, Heather, and joining the conversation today is Kent Weishaus. After a 25-year career in television production and directing, Kent took a hard turn when he decided to shift careers. He went back to school and became a licensed clinical social worker, now running his own private practice. He is also the author of his recently published book, Stop Breaking Down, The Secret to Avoiding Overwhelm and Crack Up. Welcome to the show, Kent. Thank you, Heather. I'm very happy to be here. As we were saying just before we came came on here, uh, I, I'm honored to be asked to be on, on, on the podcast because your mission is uh, congruent with mine. Well, I'm very happy to hear that, um, that not only it, it is aligned with yours, but just, just the general fact that other people have a similar mission, just because obviously it's mine. So I think it's very important. So I love that other people are, are doing this as well. And you're doing it in your own way. But um, before we actually dig into that, I always like to start the show by having the guests share your origin story. So we're taking it back here to kind of your formative years. Well, before 25, I know formative is usually a little bit younger than that, but basically up to age 25, things, life events, family dynamics, things that you believe shaped who you are today. Right. Well, uh, and this actually, I think, is dovetails with one of your other questions, uh, which is what biases do I have? Um, because I was shaped, one does not avoid the other. You know, I grew up uh, an upper middle class white kid in uh, Studio City, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, an affluent suburb of Los Angeles. Uh, my father was a psychiatrist back in the day when psychiatrists uh, were actually therapists and not uh, chemists. Um, and uh, I had a privileged upbringing. Um, and I've been, over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, this, is, uh, this has really dawned on me over and over and more extensively, uh, because I know a lot of your guests uh, do not come from this sort of background. <laughs> and so uh, it is, I've, I think I've had it easier than a lot of people. At the same time, uh, I think I'm able to bring certain skills to the table um, because I've been influenced by a pro-social and progressive point of view uh, that uh, that I'm able to question my privilege kind of in an ongoing manner as I continue to research um, the systems we're embedded in. But I, I'm diverging from your question. My formative influences. Well, I guess that's the main one. Uh, father, psychiatrist mother uh, was working if, for an appliance company and she actually in her 50s went back and got her PhD in sociology and became marriage and family therapist. And so uh, I guess I'm following in their tracks, uh, leaving a second career. 
Yeah. And I think it's, I think it is an important thing that you highlighted is um, this idea of privilege. And I think the narrative, and I understand exactly why, but I think the narrative is often that, um, oh, you have privilege, you don't understand, you can't understand, therefore you shouldn't have a voice. And, and I disagree with that. I think that you, everyone has a voice, regardless of whether we want them to or not. <laughs> and the best thing we can do with our privilege is use it to help others with privilege to understand where we need to take second looks. So I, I think that it's um, a really nice that you shared that. I, you know, looking at your career. So it's funny because you you said you're following your parents' footsteps and you are, but you you this kind of after a long career in a very different industry. So would you tell us a little bit about your experience in the television industry and what some of the signs were maybe that caused you to rethink what you were doing? <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess going back to the, the early influences, I, I, I grew up in Los Angeles. I was uh, influenced by television really sort of blooming all around me. I thought, well, that's a good way to make a living. And I went into theater. Um, uh, I tried to go into psychology. I went into theater. Psychology was very rooted in behavioralism at the time, and I had studied some humanistic, and I said, I don't want two years of behavioralism with no humanism. So I said, no, I'm going to go into theater, and uh, became a, a theatrical director, actor, uh, stage manager, and then from there gravitated to television production. To encapsulate it all, 25 years later, I came back a short distance correctly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I I, uh, I started working for Dick Clark Productions in uh, a long time ago. I think it was 1978, and um, then worked on a number of, for a number of shows. I worked for Paramount Pictures uh, Television for many years, uh, doing uh, the show Solid Gold. For those of you old enough to remember, uh, the Arsenio Hall show was a breakthrough talk show. In, in which a black man uh, was the host, and he was quite celebrated in the 90s. Um, and uh, I was, I uh, guess the word privileged, to work on that show uh, for almost six years. It was a great experience. And then after that, um, uh, various other Disney, let's say I did some Disney specials, and uh, I was on a sitcom, um, Amen, for a while with Sherman Hemsley. Uh, and then uh, the, the low-hanging fruit was tabloid television shows, which I gravitated towards, uh, and uh, and I worked on several of those uh, and became increasingly disillusioned. I was on Dr. Dr. Phil for the first six months it was on the air as associate director, handling a lot of the editing on that. And um, and then uh, towards the end, I, I worked on a, on a failed dot-com startup, which was called Rehearsals.com, which actually was showing uh, a lot of uh, big-name uh, music acts in rehearsal preparing their, their tours or their albums. And that was a fun experience as, as opposed to all the tabloid stuff I was doing in and around that. So that – and then, then in about 2006, I decided uh, – but it had been building up since the end of Arsenio. It had been building up like, I got to get out of this and do something more meaningful. And so uh, I went back to uh, grad school in 06, uh, got my degree in 09, was licensed in, I think, 11, 
and um, I have worked in uh, mental hospitals, uh, clinics, and schools, and uh, also uh, launched a private practice about 10 or 11 years ago uh, that that is, uh, has been pretty successful. Um, I am now at the point in my life where I'm working less, so um, I call myself semi-retired, and I'm trying to bring the wisdom I've accumulated over the years to the table, which is why I wrote this book called Stop Breaking Down. Awesome. Now, I, I saw that you, or did I see it or did I hear it? Somewhere you saying that one of the things that kind of had caught your attention towards the end of your career was that you felt like you started to notice that um, some of the shows that were on, and I, I, you didn't say whether they were the shows you were working on, so just so we're not make, <laughs> making any negative statements to anybody, but some of the shows you were noticing were having a negative impact on viewers, or yeah. at least that was, that was what you thought. So can you expand on that a little bit and tell tell us why you thought that and, and what impact you were seeing? Sure. Uh, tabloid television in particular and, uh, and other shows that uh, make entertainment out of therapy. Um, this, this gets into the meat and potatoes of my book um, that we are all uh, affected by the rapid distribution the rapid fire distribution of stories, memes in media. Back then, in, in the 90s, early 2000s, it was primarily television. Social media hadn't really come into its own yet. And uh, these ideas about uh, what celebrities are getting divorced or having sex with or getting in fights with um, or getting drunk or uh, other people that can be shamed or... Uh, or honored for peculiar things. I, I understand that it might be a way of coping for viewers, but I think that the imprint of these ideas distorts thoughts. And um, you're much better to seek out stories in other ways, or at least healthier ones. It, it is definitely an interesting thing to consider. Um, and I, I will out myself on this one, but it the true crime genre, um, and I'm thinking more in podcasts, but it certainly is in in television as well. I feel like it's always been under this under the surface, or, or not under the surface, but it's always been there. It seems to have amped up in recent years. I'll just say that, and I'm guilty of it. Like I could fall I could fall asleep to a true crime show. That's very strange. <laughs> <laughs> to to consider when you step back and consider it. So I can understand that. I do know that, you know, what you're saying, though, is, is like a kind of a coping or a way to kind of remove yourself from your own life. Exactly. Step, step out of your own skin by getting into somebody else's story. Um, I don't know if I can be... The, the the problem with with true crime, in my, in my subjective opinion, is that it alters... Uh, all of uh, most of the many of these shows uh, put a spotlight on outlying events and and as we watch them over and over or hear the story over and over it they be they the distortion is that oh this thing which is pretty unlikely to happen around me is happening all the time because um this is what uh daniel kahneman um who's a nobel winning uh, author in his book, uh, 
fast and slow thinking. The idea of slow thinking, to think about your thinking, to think about cognition, because we get rooted in what he calls the availability heuristic. Um, something is immediately available. Something is uh, normalized, which is an outlying event, and it influences our behavior. And we can see this with crime stats today and and social media videos of car crashes and plane crashes and people getting beat up and and uh what what seems like oh these are normal everyday things they happening just down the street from me in fact they're not in most parts of the world or at least and and not to minimize the problems that are coming out from certain parts but i i think that the magnification that we get in social media is very distorting and has to be questioned all the time. And as well as television, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so when I think about that, I, I think there's two sides that I consider because I definitely think it should be questioned. Absolutely. Everything should be questioned, looking for sources, making sure that it's not, you know, don't take someone's sensationalized version as the absolute truth, right? It's never that. It's never that. But I also wonder if it is, with social media specifically, if it is helping people to be more understanding of the situations, because even though they're not happening necessarily at the magnitude that we think they are, they are happening. And people that are in unaffected areas have long been able to deny that they were happening or not have to acknowledge. So I don't know. It's We don't even have to go down this path because I'm going on a bit of a tangent here. No, but it's, I do a, think it, about that. it's a valuable path because um, I'll just share my, my subjective opinion is that uh, people who have been in the shadows and marginalized actually are now able to share um, extremely distressing stories of abuse, which were never able to be shared before this era that we're in now. And I, I think that's quite valuable. Um, I, my, my subjective approach is that uh, established affluent stories that show uh, what I consider to be outlying events that, that, that are threatening the status quo help the status quo dig in. Um, and, and you know, this, this goes back to a, a pervasive slant, I think, that, that it is moneyed interests that are controlling pretty much all these platforms. And, and what I learned in television is that the overall, the driving force here is we want to sell more of our advertisers stuff. We want to sell more Coca-Cola. And uh, so if we can get you to look at these wild events and then cut to, hey, it's Coca-Cola, um, that's going to be an effective model. And um, but what you're saying, I think, is absolutely right. The idea that people who have never had a voice, there is a de democratization that has come with social media, even though it's extremely distorting. There are stories that are being shared, uh, you know. The, the covenants that were common in the earlier part of the 20th century, excluding people of color from, from owning real estate in vast areas of Los Angeles. Um, uh, with social media, I don't know that that could have been allowed because uh, the, the, you know, 
the idea and and the the ways that people were uh, subjected to discrimination and uh, not allowed to share wealth in the same way white people have have shared wealth. So um, so in that sense, and and. and not just sharing wealth, but we're subjected to tremendous, you know, physical abuses. So. Well, and this is where um, grounding, balance, mental mental wellness comes into play, I think. What are some of the, in your practice, and it, obviously in your studies, but, but more so in your practice, what are some of the mental health, mental wellness trends that you feel like you've noticed, some, some patterns or, or things that you've seen on repeat? trends uh in terms of in terms of favored therapies or ways to approach or trends in terms of uh, what we call quote unquote pathologies yeah good question that was a very that was a very broad <laughs> question so thank you for asking for clarity i would say uh, more pathologies i would say more trends in particular communities that might be affected more than others trends in certain certain mental illnesses that have keep happening more prevalent prevalently um, over the years, things like that. Right. In my experience, most what is what is termed as mental illness are reactions to real or perceived traumatic events. And uh, one of the main things thrust of my book is that we are in a state of overwhelm in terms of both narratives as well as uh, stimuli, just sensory stimulation, that if we look at just back 100 years, um, we were not subjected, or 120 years, we were not subjected to nearly as much stimuli as we are now. And so in the last four generations, we've had to adapt very, very quickly. Uh, and so the things we were talking about, which are now commonly shared, uh, these awful outlying events every few seconds, we perceive as many of us perceive as trauma and, or, or traumatically, because, again, 120 years ago, those ideas were not so easily shared. And certainly it took days, weeks, even months to, to share them sometimes. And so the state of overwhelm that I theorize many of us are in, I think is affecting rates of the, the, the response to trauma can, is on a range. It's some of the great thinkers of our time, like uh, Peter Levine, Gabor Mate, Brene Brown, um, Daniel Siegel. The, these people uh, talk about the, f the fight, flight, freeze continuum. And when we are in a state of overwhelm, there is a continuum from uh, that that manifests as symptoms of what we call anxiety or depression, ADHD, uh, bipolar, even psychosis. Uh, that I think are responses to the overwhelm in, in many cases to the overwhelm that we're experiencing uh, in today's world. So trauma is trying to choose my words here. I was going to say interesting. And actually, I do find it interesting, um, but not in a, you know, I'm not saying it's a great thing. I'm just saying I find it to be a fascinating experience 
that our brain and our body processes. I wonder what your thoughts are on differentiating between a trauma and an overwhelm. I've heard people talk about big T's, little T's, right? So trauma and then a small trauma. Sometimes I'm watching and not trying to judge people, but just taking in information, talking about being traumatized by hearing someone else's story. And I I feel like in my mind, not a professional here, in my mind, it's like, well, maybe you're just overwhelmed by hearing their story. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, there's a continuum there as well. Um, let me backtrack a little bit because one of my approaches has been the idea as humans that we have self-aware consciousness is what puts us in the peculiar realm of being able to to have abstract thinking wherein we repeat things over and over to ourselves. Um, so not only uh, with social media and TV and other media do we see images being repeated, but then within us, we have the capability of thinking about them over and over and over. As opposed to what I theorize most animals do not have this affliction that they're, they're, they are effect. They learn via a schema situation, an imprint, nurturance or danger. Something is nurturing. I learn about it. I return to it. Something is dangerous. I avoid it. I, I stay away from it. Um, and if there is a trauma that's experienced, uh, a life-threatening trauma, animals tend to shake it off. Now, I'm not saying this is a universal truth. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking theoretically here. And uh, you can read uh, Peter Levine talks about this extensively in his writing. The, the idea that animals have the ability to shake it off and go on about their lives um, by and large, which we do not have. The, we, we hold trauma energy inside us partly because of a thought loop between our brains and our viscera. As we think about stuff, our viscera stays activated. And as, our, as we stay activated, thoughts are triggered that we remember or project into the future about. And so, um, so we're, because of our abstract thinking capabilities, which have arguably, you know, made us an extremely strong species, uh, there's a downside. So... I digress from your question. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, that no, I, I don't think you did. I think that it's a, it's an important highlight. I actually had a guest that shared a really specific experience, and I don't want to repeat her story, but I do think that it's relevant here. She had she had a very real traumatic experience that put her in a, a place of depression for a long time. She had a dog, and she had taken the dog, and and the dog went into the river and started to get swept away. And the dog was freaking out, yapping, yapping. She runs into the water, gets the dog, the dog comes out. And and for just a very brief amount of time, the dog is still freaking out. And then it just stopped. And it's like, I'm going to go play now. And she said, it hit me. It The dog did not quiet itself. It did not tell itself it had to calm down. It did not tell itself to be quiet. You know, don't, don't scream so loud. 
it let it all out and then it went on with its day. And we don't tend to do that as humans because this comes to my next question. We all want to be fine. <laughs> this is a four letter word to me. <laughs> so fine is something that people often use. And I, and I get it. I, I use it too, because we don't always want to confront what may be going on. Um, how can, how can us taking that word fine and diminishing what might really need to be some sort of mental health concern or anxiety that we need to address? How can suppressing that affect us in the future? Right. Uh, I love the example you just brought up. Um, the dog, which probably experienced a life-threatening event, um, was able to come out, was shocked for some few moments, probably shook it off, probably did some kind of shake off, um, which is theorized to be the release of visceral traumatic energy. Okay. I didn't I didn't die. Um, I tried to run and couldn't, and I was overpowered by this force. All this energy is built up in me to try and survive. I did survive. Now, I've, now I'm going to let it out. Dog's not thinking that. This is just its process. Let it out, right? Um, and that's what eludes us because of both our tremendous strength and our greatest weakness the abstract thinking capability. I'm going to remember it. I'm going to dip into my hippocampal memory over and over and over and remember this thing that happened to me. So consequently, we develop what Richard Schwartz, who uh, created internal family systems therapy, which was based on some other parts type therapies. Uh, we carry around a wounded part of us, a wounded subpersonality. And we have all kinds of ways to protect touching that subpersonality because it's so painful. Um, and so depending on who you are, you may engage in any different kind of behavior, any bunch of different kind of behaviors from, I don't have, from drinking to uh being a marathon runner to uh, sleeping all day to having depression that guards you. The depression actually, in many cases, guards you. If I'm just tired and apathetic, I don't have to touch that really wounded part of me. Uh, if I have anxiety, if I'm, if I'm totally keyed up, a part of me is keeping me from touching that wounded part of me by keeping me focused over here. It's like a good magic trick. And so... To answer, I think coming back to your question, the, the trick therapeutically and in self-help ways is that if there is a wounded part from whatever source, from, you know, big T, small T, I don't know how to differentiate the big T, small T because that involves getting inside somebody's skin and knowing what they experienced. Um, and, and the big T, small T presumes that you can do that. You can't mind read people. <laughs> you, you can observe their behavior, but you don't know what they're actually feeling in their viscera. Uh, and so um, if there is a wounded part for any reason, I, I would say eventually it's going to be important to comfort that part yourself, to parent 
that part yourself, to love that part of yourself, as opposed to what many people try and do, which is just push it away. Or as Richard Schwartz would say, put it in exile. I'm going to exile it. Uh, so I ne so I'll do everything I can not to. And again, this is not conscious. This is an unconscious protective process. I'm going to do everything I can to not access that part of me. And uh, paradoxically, and I'm not saying, you know, this is something to rush into right away, but paradoxically, it will be important to begin to approach that part slowly and surely to take care of it, embrace it and love it because it ain't going away. But it doesn't have to be carrying as much pain as it has as when we continually exile it. Yeah. And I'll say that from my own experience and my own journey over the last couple of years of confronting some things that I used the word fine for, it is very hard. It's very difficult. But I think something that I found that was really important and one of the reasons why I decided I needed to make that confrontation is because we think that we're hiding it away and that we're protecting ourselves from it. However, what I found is even though I was pretending it was fine, it was informing every decision I was making. Therefore, even though I wasn't acknowledging it outwardly, it was impacting my everyday life. It was impacting my decisions. And so, um, yeah, I, I definitely think everybody should, I like to say confront, but also probably a, a better way is what you said, the more loving and, and comforting and parenting is probably better. Yeah. You know, we have a... <laughs> We have a great vernacular in the Western world about the war on poverty, you know, the war on drugs, uh, the war on trauma would be a good example of a perverse use of that. Um, traumatic parts of us need to be loved and parented and strangely validated, you know, saying, yes, you're there, as opposed to denied. Oh, just get over it. Pull yourself up. Exile that part of you. Those, those parts are true, as you said, to inform decision making outcomes until you until you're able to uh, begin to integrate them, as Daniel Daniel Siegel would say, integrating wounded parts into into our whole, so that um, or into our wiser parts, so that we know that they're there. We're not going to deny they're there, but they they don't have the power that they previously had. So since you've done the, you know, your, your education, which was a while ago now, but since you completed your education and you've been in the field working and learning about the brain and behaviors and, and all of these things, what are some things, or maybe just one, one that you've changed in your life when you've started to see some of the effects of behaviors? <laughs> so like a personal habit type thing? Yeah, maybe a personal sure, habit, sure. maybe maybe a show that you were watching before, something like that. Uh, here, here's something which I, I find kind of funny. So my family, my mother in particular, um, had, uh, she passed away several years ago, but she had this uh, ongoing chronic behavior of being late to many things, like she would just be late. And this included... I don't know. It was it was uh, it was modeled for me that it's okay to be late. And the woman 
uh, I am married to uh, began to educate me that this is not okay. Uh, and in fact, in my studies, I came to understand not only is it not okay for surface reasons, but it is an invalidation of the person you're being late for. Um, that you're saying you're not. It, the communication is you're not that important to me. I can I can keep you waiting for a few minutes, a and that's not how we want to behave in human relations 101. And so uh, I noticed myself being late a lot. And then I then I thought, okay, wait a minute. What is it that I'm getting out of being late? Because there's something, there's something I'm getting. There's some protector or something that's working for me. And I, I started to look at it. Well, I kind of get charged up. I get a, uh, a an energetic feeling of like, oh, I've got to, I've got to get there by twelve o'clock. You know. Um, then I then I started thinking, okay, this is this is about chemistry. There's some there's some kind of hormonal or chemical relief release within me. That's happening when the when when being late happens, when I'm on time, that doesn't happen. And so I'm thinking, what am I addicted to? This chemical that gets released in me is this an addiction? Because I'm I seem to thrive on it. And so some years ago, um, I I said I'm gonna I'm gonna try really hard. My my authentic self, I, I kind of let take over. I'm going to try really hard to not engage in this behavior. Now, I won't say I'm always successful, but I'm a lot more on time than I used to be. Um, because I said there is a, a feeling state, a chemical feeling state within me that I do not need to participate anymore. So I'm just going to leave X number of minutes early for stuff. Um, does that answer the question? <laughs> that is an absolutely fascinating. I've never even considered that. I'm very, I get, I do, I'm on time. I get very anxious when I'm not on time. I don't like it though. And what it sounds like is, so first of all, it was modeled for you from your mom. So it started out as one thing, but like, but like when you talk about addictions, and I'm not trying to say say that you were addicted to it. it I was addicted you, to it. <laughs> when you talk about behaviors like that, it then becomes that because your body is getting that, wow, I've never thought about that before. Yeah, yeah. It's the same as like I often would say, um, you know, I'm good under pressure because my brain switches and, it, and it's operating in a different way. Right, right. Wow. And, and, you know, people bungee jump. For the same kind of yep. rush, it's like this huge adrenaline rush, and probably other biochemicals, uh, and and that can be an addiction, you know. Uh, that huge rush, uh, drag racing, you know, whether it's legal or illegal. So yeah, that's uh, one thing that I've changed in myself. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you shared that because I bet. Trust me, there is a lot of people out there that are habitually late, and so I think that's a fascinating observation to share with people. So tell us about the book. Tell us about you kind of your process of writing it. Why did you write it? Who is it for? And what's your goal for the impact? Great. The book largely was therapy for me during the pandemic. And um, I started writing because I process well writing. Um, I, I've mentioned a number of people who's re who's who have written things that I have studied. Uh, and there's a number of others. I, I started devouring these people, trying to understand what. So not only the pandemic happened, but then there was a lot of uh, 
behavior in our culture that I found disturbing. And I was trying not only, you know, to some degree it manifested in my clients and to some degree it manifested in the news, which I do not get from social media. I only read the news. Um, <laughs> so as, as self-therapy, I was just trying to figure out, tell myself a story. What's going on here? Well, there is no single story. There's a hundred stories. And um, what I, I, the, the broad stroke is that we are embedded in hundreds of systems, both internal systems and external systems. Um, the external systems, especially uh, cultural systems, rain down beliefs on us. Um, and it used to be, I theorize, that the beliefs were more uh, centrally held, and there's been a fragmentation of that probably because of social media, but that's just a story I'm telling myself. Uh, I don't know that for sure. Um, and so the, the broad stroke of the book is, as I said before, our abstract thinking is our greatest strength and our most serious exposure. Um, because with abstract thinking, we've created thousands of incredible things we have, for better or worse, taken over the world. We build skyscrapers and cars and airplanes, and uh, we, we put animals in zoos so they can amuse us. Um, at, at the same time, this collective collaboration, what I call in the book, intersubjectivity, gets us into trouble when we share stories that are unhelpful. Many of our stories are laced with distortions. And I use, distortion sounds like a negative word, but it, it's not in many cases because it is a distortion that we believe green pieces of paper have money. It is a distortion that we believe that laws exist, that the constitution exists. It's an intersubjective, what used to be called folia de belief. We all agree on it. This fantasy thing exists, and it helps us create this tremendous structure that allowed us to take over the world. Therein lies the weak underbelly. These distortions can lead us down a road of, oh, I know what that person's thinking. I can predict the future. Um, I can interpret the past in a rigid way that only, only allows me to see it in a certain way. And so thinking about thinking perhaps is the greatest message I could say. Um, Brene Brown talks about, is this a story I'm telling myself? That's the strongest, one of the strongest things I can suggest with regards to people who are struggling to constantly ask, constantly, is this a story I'm telling myself? There are a dozen or so basic cognitive distortions that if you look up people like Aaron Beck or Daniel Kahneman, who wrote, wrote his more recently, uh, you, you can sort of keep this list and go, yeah, there's my distortion. That's what's creeping into this thought. Um, and to always question your thinking, 
Now, I'm not saying that the entire world is relative. You know, uh, there are certain distortions, which, as I said, are valuable. Um, I put my money in a place called Bank of America because, number one, I believe in money. Number, I, number two, I believe Bank of America is a thing that exists. They're both fantasies. They're both fantasies that we all collectively agree in. So that could be a helpful fantasy, although I would say some of the financial practices of Bank of America are highly questionable. Um, and they can be unhelpful fantasies like uh, I feel terrible, so I must be terrible. Um, uh, some of the things we talked about, uh, we were bandying diagnostic words around earlier. Um, I'm depressed. I am depressed is a way of telling yourself a story that you will never not be depressed. Um, I am, he is psychotic. So you look up psychotic in the dictionary, it's him. So there's no choice. There's no other alternative. It's a black and white statement as opposed to there are certain symptoms this person seems to be displaying. And it, we get into a trap. We get into a trap with diagnostic labels that doctors fall into as well. Um, and uh, so to always question the story you're telling yourself. Yeah, the um, connection that we have with labels, I've, um, Dr. Amon, I think was the first time I heard it said, and then I also read, um, oh, I'm going to forget his name, but the body keeps the score. That's what Vander they, Yes. Okay, there we go. Yeah. How do I not remember that name? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so the, he's mentioned it as well in his book is this idea that this DSM, right, the, the manual for yes, yes. mental health is when it originated, the the people that were working on that origination agreed that it should be a guide Right. not a manual. Right. And well, humans are humans. Yes. We like labels. Yeah. <laughs> We've definitely taken that over. Daniel Siegel, a psychiatrist and professor at UCLA has, I'm going to mess up the quote here, but he's said something to the effect of the DSM has been mistaken for reality. <laughs> and um, it's a guide. Exactly right. If you look at the back of the DSM, there is a listing of a hundred or so things which talk about what the environment does to people. Victim of sexual abuse as a child, victim of spousal abuse, victim of discrimination, uh, victim of insecure housing. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a hundred or more listings of these. Those should be the diagnoses. Those are valuable stories. Um, Oh, he's psychotic. He's depressed. He's anxious. To me, that's not helpful. I want to know what is the trauma that this person experienced so I can know how best to uh, begin to work with them. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Are you ready for the final three questions? Sure. Okay. So the first one we touched on really early on, um, but we want to get more specific. So what is one of your biases? And how do you challenge it? I think the main one, you know, I'm in the middle of reading a book called City of Courts by Mike Davis. Um, this is a somewhat old book, but it details in exhaustively the racial covenants that were happening in my hometown, Los Angeles, uh, while I was growing up. And so the idea that, uh, then I grew up in the 60s, 
and the 70s, I thought, we're on the right track. We're headed in the right direction. Things are going right. And uh, that bias has been repeatedly shot down. And as I study why, it's because of the privilege that was never questioned back. Well, this is a story I'm telling myself. The privilege that was never questioned back in back in my formative my formative years. So your goal, what you're doing now, then to fight it is you you because you've mentioned it all throughout this conversation is that you've learned and are constantly questioning now. That's right. You know, That's what's right. the story I'm telling myself? What That's is right. the, you know, how does that compare to we, reality? We are, okay. we are prone to telling ourselves black and white stories. Uh, yes or no, all or nothing. Oh, this caused that, right? We're done. Walk away. Let's go have lunch. It's never that way. It's just, there's a hundred systems at play. And I know it makes for shades of gray and variability and makes things a lot harder to figure out. But simple answers are only going to lead you to unhealthy distortions. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Just finished a course on systems thinking. And that was the hardest part of that for me is to break away from, well, isn't this reality, though, if I have proof of it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What are five words that you connect with personally in this phase of life? Wisdom. Uh, do I have to tell you why? I'm not going to tell you. Why. I'm just going to tell you the words. <laughs> wisdom, because I that's kind of one of my goals. I, I hope to share some of my wisdom. Embedded. We are embedded. The use of our abstract thought and self-aware consciousness to constantly work, use cognitive energy to try and break away from being embedded. Try and Try and get some distance between the systems around you and or your thoughts so that you can you can uh, perhaps have more control or at least uh, feel better as you walk through life and then the next one is systems so embedded in in systems that would be another word uh, development because we are constantly changing creatures we are our different parts, as I discussed earlier, of us are more active in our early development and other parts emerge in our later development. And we're dynamic, changing creatures. And I think the last word would be attachment because a sec- moving towards a more secure attachment if in my book is one of the main things I would like us all to be doing, even though systemically we are blockaded. Okay, fantastic. And then maybe most importantly, where can everybody go to connect with you, find uh, your book and and stay in touch for future projects? My website is kentw.net. So there's a link to the book there and uh, just some other discussions of the similar mindset that you and I have been talking about today. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for for writing the book, for sharing this knowledge and, and for questioning yourself. We need more people that are doing this. Uh, so it's, make it infection. it's been an honor, Heather. Thank you very much. 
Thank you for listening in today. I hope that this episode with Kent provided you a new perspective, a way to think about things from a new angle, and maybe some motivation to question your assumptions. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions expressed on today's episode, they're our own. We encourage you to do your own research and come to your own conclusions. Connect with Kent by going to the show notes and finding a link to his website. You can connect with the podcast at breakingbiaspodcast.com, where you'll find links to our social media as well as other helpful resources. If you haven't already, please be sure to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Help us expand the dialogue by sharing this show with others. And until next time, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversations going.